You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, November 17th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we'll be reading the following articles. It's Never Too Late to Save a River by Rebecca Lawton. Chautauqua Receives Federal Grant for Fire Mitigation Project by Will Matsuka. Citizen Science-Led Study Finds Ticks Expanding into New Terrain in Colorado by Will Matsuka. Public Access TV is Dead, Long Live Public Access TV by Caitlin Rocket. Not Even Past by Jesse J. Gray. The Ghosts of Sakura Square by Tony Tresca. The Limits of Empathy by Michael J. Casey. It's Never Too Late to Save a River by Rebecca Lawton. An old river running motto says, Old boaters never die, they just get a little dingy. And some never lose their passion for keeping rivers wild. Consider California's Stanislaus River. In the 1970s, people of all ages and abilities reveled in running its 13 miles of rapids, bearing scary names like Widowmaker and Devil's Staircase. Not far from Sacramento and San Francisco, the Limestone Canyon offered renewal and adventure to people nearly year-round. But back in 1944, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation authorized 625-foot-high New Melones Dam for the Stan, though filling it would drown the beloved canyon. Dam construction began in 1966, and spirited opposition grew, giving rise to the grassroots organization Friends of the River. Advocates argued that a smaller, existing dam could meet flood control and energy production needs without drowning the wild stretch of river. Despite actions ranging from citizens' initiatives to lawsuits and even a favorable Supreme Court ruling, New Melones Dam was built. As water in the reservoir rose in 1979, Friends of the River co-founder Marc Dubois chained himself to bedrock below the high water line to force dam operators to stop filling. 15-year-old Sue Knopp also went to work, rescuing wildlife day and night for two months from flooded trees and islands. But she could not save them all, and Dubois could not hold back the reservoir. The River Canyon and priceless prehistoric and historic cultural sites were inundated. Now, with New Melones logging its fourth decade of broken promises in water delivery, flood control, and energy production, hundreds of river advocates from the old campaign hope to reclaim the stand. In their teens and twenties back then, and today in their sixties and seventies, 
They believe the timing has never been better. It's now a matter of, well, of course, says Dubois, vice president of the new nonprofit Restoring the Stanislaus River. National momentum is growing for dam removal and expanding economically and ecologically wise floodplains. Knopp, president and chief investigator of the new group, has moved her activism into filmmaking. When Mark wanted the Stanislaus story to be told as it should be, in pictures, I offered to create a movie about the 1970s fight. Beginning work on the film reawakened their long-held dream of reclaiming the river, so now members are proposing a full watershed approach, re-vegetating reaches of the upper river, removing sections of New Melones to maintain lower reservoir levels, and working with downstream farmers to protect floodplains. Promoting the deconstruction of large dams attracts plenty of media attention. Think of the Klamath River in California and Oregon, and the Snake and Columbia Rivers in Washington. Taking down smaller dams receives less fanfare, though some 1,100 small dams have come down in the past 20 years in the United States alone. As California becomes ever drier, many people agree that the new Maloney's Dam should go. Only 26% full today, the reservoir has been near capacity only five times since first filling. Power production capabilities based on 40 years of inflow data have never been achieved. Even interior department engineers admit they underestimated the river's drought and demand cycles by a significant amount. Roy Tennant, a former Stanislaus River guide and now secretary for restoring the Stanislaus River, acknowledges that successful full watershed restoration will take a ton of work and money. But we have to begin while we are alive and have the passion to do it. Kevin Wolf, former River Guide organizer for the 1970s campaign and current treasurer of Restoring the Stanislaus River, says billion-dollar ballot measures might be what it takes to change the state's water infrastructure. But big ideas like taking dams down start with small groups of wild-eyed activists moving ideas forward. Dubois, whose civil action in the 1970s inspired many river protection efforts, adds that it's time to repair the good intentions of the outmoded dam-building era, to restore the wild, rich abundance that rivers have always been. As for Knopp, she says, Healing has already begun as both the film and the push to restore the Stanislaus River have come alive. And the river... I have total faith that it will know what to do. Becca Lawton is a contributor to Writers on the Range, writersontherange.org, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring lively conversation about the West. A former Grand Canyon River Guide and Ranger, she began as a Stanislaus River Guide and Advocate. This opinion column does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. Chautauqua Receives Federal Grant for Fire Mitigation Projects by Will Matsuka 
The NCAR fire caused thousands of people to evacuate homes and businesses on March 26th. Included in the order was all of Chautauqua, the first evacuation the historic institution has ever made. I think that really brought it home for all of us, the urgency of this issue, says Liza Purvis, Director of Marketing and Communications at Colorado Chautauqua Association, CCA. Both the NCAR and Marshall fires showed the increased wildfire risk throughout the county as they burned residential areas outside of the typical fire season. The iconic National Historical Landmark sits in what is known as the Wildland Urban Interface, an area where a built environment meets a natural environment. Staff at Chautauqua were forced to assess their own vulnerability to wildfire. Basically, we're a wooden village, an ember away from destruction, says Debbie Stewart, the Director of Development and Community Partnerships at CCA. Earlier this fall, CCA, the nonprofit steward of the Colorado Chautauqua, received a $280,721 Save America's Treasures grant from the Department of Interior National Park Service to protect Chautauqua from wildfire threats. We have a strong responsibility to help care and preserve Chautauqua for the community, Stewart says. It's both a local and a national treasure, and we really hold that in high regard. We try to do everything we can to make sure we're doing our part to be good stewards. But making a national historical landmark more fire resilient, especially when nearly 60 wood cottages, some more than a century old, are located at the Wildland Urban Interface, is a steep task. Being a national historic landmark, we are always trying to balance preservation with sustainability. And this wildfire initiative is tricky. It's an art, really, says Jason Hill, CCA's chief operating officer. Chautauqua staff have been working with local consultants and volunteers to reach the low-hanging fruit of fire mitigation expanding defensible space, trimming and removing ignitable fuels, and incorporating fire-resilient plants, those with high moisture content, or deciduous plants. This summer, the reconstruction of the original 1899 Chautauqua Cafe implemented fire prevention techniques, like using building materials that are less ignitable. Chautauqua already dipped into grant money to install gutter guards on all CCA-owned buildings, an installation Hill calls a no-brainer because of its limited visual impact on the buildings. The best uses for the remainder of the grant money is still being discussed. Hill says they've made efforts to expand irrigation along the perimeter of buildings and are looking into putting sprinkler heads on buildings to extinguish fires. They've also been experimenting with adding screens around foundations where there are open areas embers could sneak into, a method Hill thinks could be a win-win from a preservation and land mitigation perspective. But staff are hesitant to implement other popular fire mitigation techniques, like re-siding with less flammable material, like cementitious siding, because it could compromise the preservation of the structure. Hill, who self-describes himself as a preservationist at heart, 
says using a material other than the original wood, even if it looks like wood, would be tough for him to swallow. There's some real concerns about what using cementitious siding means from a preservation perspective, from a historic building perspective, he says. But Chautauqua staff are seeking to understand all the preservation and mitigation tools they could use to protect the grounds. Really, it's a balancing act, says Stewart. How do we preserve the historic character of our campus while adopting fire prevention initiatives? It's something we take seriously, but it's a challenge. Citizen science-led study finds ticks expanding into new terrain in Colorado by Will Matsuka. Ticks are already commonplace in Colorado, and they're becoming more prevalent. But the state's terrain can make tracking them difficult, which is why researchers at Colorado State University built a study that would offer better understanding of tick populations in the state. The study, published in the November issue of the peer-reviewed journal Ticks and Tick-Borne Disease, indicates that the Rocky Mountain wood tick, the most prevalent tick species in Colorado, is expanding into new parts of the state. It also confirmed a new tick species not documented by the Center for Disease Control, CDC, in Colorado, the American dog tick. The Rocky Mountain wood tick was found in five new counties, 38 total, and the American dog tick in 16 new counties, 16 total. Most of the data analyzed was from people sending in tick samples, known as citizen scientists. But it's not just the spread that concerns scientists and health experts. It's the diseases these ticks can carry with them. The broader impact of this study is that these ticks can transmit pathogens that can cause disease in humans, says Emma Harris, who is a research scientist at Colorado State University in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology. Harris was not a co-author on the study, but works in the Center for Vector-Borne Infectious Diseases at CSU, and is familiar with the study. Both ticks are known to carry the bacteria that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever and tularemia, rabbit fever, two potentially life-threatening diseases. These findings are representative of a growing national trend. Ticks are moving to new areas, and their populations are growing. The CDC attributes the spread of ticks to a variety of things, including changes in land use patterns, like reforestation and suburban development, and climate change. Their life cycle and populations are strongly influenced by temperature. Every year, nearly half a million people are diagnosed and treated for a tick-borne disease, and between 2004 and 2016, the reported cases of bacterial and protozoan tick-borne diseases doubled. With no active surveillance program for ticks and tick-borne diseases in Colorado, their population and distribution are somewhat unknown. Part of the goal of the CSU study was to get a better picture of the prevalence of these ticks at the county level across the state. When surveillance maps are accurate and up-to-date, they can help inform the public of their risk of exposure to ticks. 
This study is a red flag that, on the county level, it is necessary to increase surveillance of ticks locally and on an individual level, to take precautions and know the symptoms of tick-borne diseases, said Daniel Salkeld, co-author of the study, in a press release. The study relied on citizen scientist data collection, a form of passive tick surveillance offered by the Bay Area Lyme Foundation that increases the geographic scope and lowers costs. Harris says the willingness of people to submit ticks was instrumental in collecting data that show the spread of the two tick species in Colorado. Just being able to engage the community is really great, because then individuals are able to learn the risks and understand where they're encountering ticks the most, she says. She encourages folks to take preventative measures like tick checks or putting clothes in the dryer after an outdoor adventure. But not every tick you encounter hosts a harmful pathogen. Harris says people shouldn't be alarmed by the expansion of the American dog tick and the Rocky Mountain wood tick. It should just inform people to know the risks for the day. It's a more well-rounded understanding of the environment around us, which is an amazing thing, she says. That's the power of science. Public Access TV is dead. Long live Public Access TV. Boulder gave up on the concept nearly 15 years ago. Longmont is reimagining the model. Is there a place for this curio of the cable era in our digital world? By Caitlin Rocket. Clad in a plaid blazer, ash blonde hair slicked into a low volume pompadour, Andy Epler channels a Coloradoized version of a late night host as he gestures to his sidekick, Jack during a live pre-election special edition of his homegrown talk show, Boulder County Tonight. We're on public television right now, so I think, by the rules, you get a monkey puppet. At least one, Epler tells the audience gathered at Longmont Public Media, LPM, on November 3rd. Mine is my childhood friend, Jack. Put your hands together for my old friend. The audience claps. Jack squeaks. Epler winks. Boulder County Tonight has been a regular fixture of LPM's programming for the past year, bringing in local politicians, gadflies, and journalists like yours truly, full disclosure on episode two, to talk about community concerns, all filtered through Epler's irreverent, sometimes profane humor. It's classic public access programming, local, offbeat, corny, funny, awkward. Though in today's extremely online world, it's easy to wonder what function public access TV stations serve. Their creation and federal mandate in the 70s was a response to the monolith of commercial broadcasting. Television was powerful, and public access gave some of that power to the people. Funded at least partially through franchise agreements between municipalities and cable companies, public access TV programming was originally broadcast only to cable subscribers in the city, though the internet has changed this a bit. 
For cities that have a franchise agreement, between $0.25 cents and $1 of every cable subscriber's monthly bill goes toward public educational and governmental, or PEG, programming, typically shown on three separate channels. Municipalities can only use this money to purchase equipment, not staff. The governmental channel airs council and commission meetings and announcements from local leadership, while the education channel runs school closures, lunch menus, board meetings, and student-produced content. On the public access side, anyone in the community can schedule time to use the studio and equipment to produce content. And, as long as the content is lawful, it's broadcast to your community. But cable subscriptions are plummeting, meaning PEG funding is dwindling, and social media has made everyone a content creator. The Alliance for Community Media found that the number of public access stations has dipped from 2,500 in 1980 to 1,600 nationwide in 2020, many of them operated by a skeleton crew of one to three employees, like Longmont Public Media. It's a community center, says LPM board member Anthony Main. That, to us, is what defines public access, moving beyond cable, engaging with other modalities, and creating the opportunity for synergy between those different modalities. While the media landscape may have shifted seismically, public access operators see their role in society as unchanged. Bastions of free speech, a voice to the people, a middle finger to commercial media. LPM, like other public access operators around the country, is broadening its approach to services and funding in a bid to stay alive. But of course, not everyone thinks it's a fight worth waging. The Legacy of Boulder's Channel 54 the City of Boulder's public access TV station, Channel 54, went off the air in 2009. However, of the nine sources interviewed for this story, none could remember exactly when the end came. Like all the great stories about Boulder, this one is mired in controversy and over-the-top personalities. And like all great stories, no one wanted to go on the record about it. It's one of those stories where everyone wants to talk about it, but there's too many people still alive, laughs Alan Ohashi, former head of Channel 54. Ohashi says he was appointed by city council to be on the board for Boulder Television's public access station, to kind of oversee the management of it. But what I didn't know at the time was they were trying to close down that organization and start something new because I won't name names, and maybe you've heard of some of the names, but there were some producers in town who were causing problems for city council. According to a Daily Camera article from August 2009, Tony Perry resigned from his position as head of Boulder Television's Channel 54 to concentrate on education-based content for Boulder's Channel 22, which is still in operation today, although not under Perry. The article addresses an investigation into allegations by former producers who accused Perry of mistreating women and refusing to air their shows. 
Perry told the camera the complaints were being orchestrated by a producer he suspended for misconduct. The archived comments of the article seem to address the controversy to which Ohashi alludes, with many people sounding off angrily about Jan Scott, a regular producer on Channel 54, who went on to form his own freewheeling company media group, Boulder Channel 1. I remember growing up in high school and my mom talking about Jan Scott, says local adventure legend and bike enthusiast Ryan Van Duzer, who got his start in outdoor TV on Channel 54 in 2006 with his show Get Out There, now a YouTube channel with 165,000 subscribers. He may have covered some important topics in Boulder, but he was a rabble-rouser. But did Jan Scott kill Boulder Public Access TV? I really don't think it was his fault, says Van Duzer, but he was definitely a Boulder character for a long time. Scott didn't respond to requests for an interview. Ohashi says that by 2009, Boulder City Council wasn't interested in hosting a traditional public access TV station anymore, and absorbed the PEG money and equipment into the governmental and educational channels. I was surprised. The station was going pretty well, Ohashi says. We had some pretty set parameters and programming, and I'm a firm believer that there should be more of an outlet for people to just say what's on their mind, as long as it's lawful. So that went kind of outside the box that some of the city people thought we should be in. Sarah Huntley, Director of Communications for the City of Boulder, says the city's franchise agreement with Comcast does not require the city to run a public access station. Instead, the city really leans into our government access television. Channel 8, which shows city council meetings, boards and commissions, plus some city announcements from Inside Boulder News and other programming developed by city agencies. Channel 22, the educational station, is managed by the Boulder Valley School District. Hundley questions the relevance of public access TV in today's world. The decision of whether we bring back public access channel is not mine to make, she says. The franchise is signed by the city to be approved by the city manager and city council. It's not something that I really have a significant voice in. From the should-we-do-it perspective, I would have a lot of questions about how we would do it, and what the impact would be on our current day resources, and whether it's actually even the best use of those resources, given all of the access to streaming that we currently have in society. But, you know, if we were directed to do that, and there was value seen in that by the folks who get to make that decision, we would be left to implement it. A new public access in Longmont. When you're saying that maybe public access isn't important in the modern age, you're really assuming a lot about your community, counters Boulder County Tonight host Epler. And probably the number one problem with that assumption is the idea that everybody in your community can afford modern tools to express through and knows how to use them. Whereas Longmont Public Media, they are able to provide cutting-edge tools and cutting-edge training, largely by volunteers. 
That's, I think, just the epitome of communication in the modern age with a focus on community. Longmont Public Media is a nonprofit makerspace where members of the community can do more than just make public access TV programming, like learn video or audio editing, create podcasts, or even host concerts. The org, which in 2019 won the contract to operate all three of Longmont's PEG channels, gets a portion of its funding from PEG fees, but also through membership fees. I think what makes us unique is our change in membership model, says Sergio R. Angeles, executive director of LMP and one of its three staff members. Most of the other public access stations, from what I've seen, just charge one yearly fee, and it's like 25-35 bucks a year, which is not sustainable as franchise and cable fees decline. Because cable subscribers are unsubscribing, there will be no money to sustain public access or a community media center. So we said, let's increase the dues, which are still extremely affordable and see if we can sustain a public access station primarily through a membership model. Memberships are offered on a sliding scale, from $25 per year to $25 per month, depending on your needs, with a free option available. Longmont Mayor Joan Peck has publicly voiced concerns over the sustainability of LPM's business model voting as recently as this September not to renew LPM's franchise contract for another two years. She was the sole no vote. There has been slow growth, and I wouldn't actually make that an issue with LPM as much as COVID, because they came in right at the start of the pandemic, Peck says. So they had difficulty with their membership. They came back to us for more operating money twice, and we said, yeah, we got it. But I personally suggested they needed to look at their business model because they were only counting on memberships. Do some more research before just coming and asking for more money. LPM board member Mains says the organization is looking to replace dwindling cable franchise fees with a diversified matrix of funds, from memberships to grants to corporate sponsorships and whatever else we can come up with. Angelus believes the next two years will show whether or not a model like what we are doing is viable. Angelus says there's also been pushback around some of the content created through LPM, particularly Epler's Boulder County Tonight, which Peck has called out in city council meetings. But as long as the content adheres to LPM standards, Angelus says we're not limiting anyone. We are very community-focused, and we want to broadcast and distribute as much local content as possible, says Angelus. And that means that content is created by the residents, for the residents. And if there are sometimes producers like Andy, what's the right word to describe his content? Colorful, offers Maine. Colorful, Angelus agrees. I mean, you know, the whole point of public access was free speech. Maine says LPM is starting to branch out more into the community, hosting its first internship program this past summer, with plans to partner with Longmont's Hour Center to help teach digital production skills to those who don't have the means. 
Maine also points to The Shakedown, a locally produced podcast where hosts discuss the criminal justice system from their experiences inside and out. A focus on accessibility, I think, is key. Our intent is to always have a free tier membership, so that no matter what, people have access to this equipment and learning, Maine says. It's a difficult balance trying to figure out what we should focus on. In the end, it's about having the time to do it. Despite having my concerns, Peck says she hopes LPM succeeds. Public Access 2.0? In a 2015 short documentary by the AV Club, Barbara Popovich, a nearly 40-year veteran of Chicago's public access world, said... The conversion of people from being consumers to creators of content, which continues to this day through social media and through YouTube, public access has not received its just due as one of the first triggers of that horizon. Popovich and other media experts wax poetic on the role of public access in the 21st century, wondering why cable companies, which have now become internet service providers, aren't federally mandated to provide video hosting and production services online in the same way they were required to provide that space on cable airwaves. Will YouTube continue to present all of this work for free, or will it come up with some system to limit the amount of producers on this site? Wonders Amar Jean Christian, a professor of communication studies at Northwestern University. And unlike public access, that limiting will not be in the interest of the public. It will be framed as in the interest of YouTube. The model that was established, which is that the industry that profits from our public rights of way, needs to set aside something for the public, Popovich says. The documentary ends with a hypothetical vision of the future, where YouTube becomes video commons, a free, non-commercial video hosting and production service funded by internet service providers as required by federal mandate. Maybe that's Public Access 2.0. Not even passed. After objections led to the closure of an earlier exhibition on the Sand Creek Massacre, History Colorado brings tribal citizens to the table for a new look at the atrocity of 1864 by Jesse J. Gray. The Centennial State was born in bloodshed. On a cold morning in late November during the run-up to Colorado statehood, more than 230 women, children, and elders of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes were killed near Fort Lyon in a surprise attack by the United States military. The slaughter was part of a broader campaign to carve a new map as white settlers pushed into tribal homelands throughout the American West. Colorado isn't an accident. It didn't just appear out of thin air, says Sam Bach, public historian and exhibit developer at History Colorado, where a new gallery show on the Sand Creek Massacre opens November 19th, at the state-run Historical Society's flagship Denver Museum. There was a historical process by which the state came to be, and the early part of that process, unfortunately, involves the extremely violent removal of Native people, 
This ethnic cleansing was a national project, but it was brutally expressed that fall morning in 1864 along Big Sandy Creek on the southeastern plains of Colorado. That's where non-combatant Cheyenne and Arapaho citizens had gathered under the false promise of safety, while an elusive peace deal was brokered among tribal and military leaders in Denver. Cheyenne Chief Black Kettle was instructed to fly a white flag beneath the Stars and Stripes, a peacekeeping gesture to ward off American aggression outside the encampment that would become the site of the deadliest day in Colorado history and one of the bloodiest massacres in the so-called Indian Wars. Our people were butchered. They were butchered, says Northern Arapaho citizen Gail Ridgely, whose ancestor lame man was among the survivors. Babies were cut out of their mothers. It was devastating, horrific. Despite the ghastliness of the atrocity and the rich tribal traditions preceding and surviving it, Today, there's little evidence in Colorado of its once-thriving indigenous nations that have since been scattered across Oklahoma, Wyoming, and Montana. Aside from a cluster of street names in front-range cities like Denver and Boulder, if the violence hadn't touched your family's life like it did Ridgely's, you might not know the Cheyenne and Arapaho were ever here. That's part of what the new History Colorado Center exhibition seeks to rectify. But the road to this historical reckoning hasn't been a straight one for the nonprofit division of the Colorado Department of Higher Education. The center's first gallery exhibition on the Sand Creek Massacre was shuttered not long after its debut in April of 2012. The main criticism was that it was not done in consultation with the tribes, says Shannon Voirol, director of exhibit planning. They wanted to be part of the conversation and share their perspective, and at that point, History Colorado hadn't done that. From his home on the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming, Ridgely notes historical inaccuracies in the original Sand Creek Massacre exhibition, and says the institution put the cart before the horse by not consulting tribal representatives. For the 72-year-old Northern Arapaho citizen and many other indigenous people, it's a familiar grievance connected to a large erasure of native histories and traditions in North America. The Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes have pride in our language, our culture, our heritage, and ceremonies. Each of us is unique, he says. But the history has been distorted since 1492, our people don't want to be portrayed as a fairy tale. The Long Arc of History History Colorado Center's inaugural Sand Creek Massacre exhibition closed in June of 2013. Tribal consultation for a new display began soon after, with Cheyenne and Arapaho representatives, including Ridgely, meeting with History Colorado leadership to discuss a path forward. The purpose of the consultation was to begin addressing concerns from the tribes regarding the exhibit, and to develop a plan together for future relations between History Colorado and the tribes, Ridgely says. We all agreed these were encouraging and productive meetings. 
From there, Bach says History Colorado put tribal citizens behind the wheel as the new Sand Creek Massacre exhibition came slowly into view over the following years. He describes the frequent consultations as a mutually beneficial partnership that strengthened the quality of the resulting gallery show while honoring the true story of the long misunderstood atrocity of 1864. The tribal representatives really drove a lot of this process. Many of them are descendants of the survivors and victims of the Sand Creek Massacre. So they were really the experts in the story, Bach says. We were the ones bringing the knowledge of how to turn those histories into an exhibit. When it came to translating this tragic and sacred story into a curated display, Tribal members like Ridgely had no shortage of suggestions for framing an accurate and respectful narrative of the massacre and its victims. Among them was the idea that the exhibition should take care to depict life among the tribes before settler colonial violence destroyed many of their proud and time-honored traditions. One thing we heard loud and clear from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribal reps is that they wanted the exhibit to begin before the massacre, Voiral says. They wanted it to show things like the richness of their lives, the civility, the deep trade relationships, and all those kinds of things from before the violence started. And so that is where the exhibit begins, Cheyenne and Arapaho lives before the massacre. To that end, Visitors to History Colorado Center's new Sand Creek Massacre exhibition can expect a panoramic view of tribal life contextualized through everyday objects, artworks, and historical photographs. The long-awaited gallery show also includes extensive oral histories by late Cheyenne and Arapaho elders, along with video of contemporary tribal citizens discussing what the massacre means to them today. One thing museum-goers won't find is artifacts from the day, or site of the killings, which are far from a distant memory for many living descendants. The Sand Creek Massacre isn't just a piece of history that happened a long time ago, Bach says. It's a very real, current family history for many of the tribal representatives we worked with, and many of the tribal members we've spoken to. It continues to have enduring impacts in the tribal communities today. Ultimately for Ridgely, whose family story became intertwined with the unspeakable violence of late November 1864, the new Sand Creek Massacre exhibition is about more than setting the record straight. It's also an opportunity to suture old wounds and forge a better future for Native people in the United States and beyond. It's about historical remembrance, educational awareness, and spiritual healing, he says. And the healing goes on. On view, the Sand Creek Massacre, the betrayal that changed Cheyenne and Arapaho people forever, opens Saturday, November 19th. History Center, Colorado, 1200 North Broadway, Denver. The Ghosts of Sakura Square The historic heart of Denver's Japanese-American community becomes an immersive theatrical site in the supernatural Zoto by Tony Tresca. 
Denver's Sakura Square is haunted. But it's not the usual apparitions stalking the city's historic Japanese-American neighborhood in Zoto, the new immersive production opening this weekend. Instead, it's the ghosts of racial strife past and present, historical horrors like Japanese internment during World War II, alongside the discriminatory inheritances of redlining, resettlement, and gentrification. The show follows Dr. Kitsu, a kitsune, a fox spirit from Japanese folklore, who invites the audience to journey through the Zoto Holistic Health Office. They are tasked with helping a fifth-generation Japanese-American patient named Mia locate her grandmother. This leads visitors into an interactive world where they come face-to-face with our troubled past. And it all takes place inside a Sakura Square building full of vacant offices in Denver's Lodo District, where the city's once-thriving Chinatown was destroyed by a white mob in 1880. The front range may not be top of mind when it comes to such cutting-edge theatrical experiences, but with outside-the-box productions like DCPA's Theater of the Mind, whose run was recently extended through January due to public demand, and interactive art mainstays like Meow Wolf Denver's Convergence Station, the region is making a case for itself as a hub of experiential art. Denver is becoming known as a place to create new immersive work, says Courtney Ozaki, founder of the Japanese Arts Network and creative producer of Zoto. The group recently took part in the Denver Immersive Gathering, an international networking event and exhibition for immersive creators. Zoto was presented there as a work in progress, attended and critiqued by immersive and experiential entertainment professionals from all over the world. It was super exciting to have a Disney Imagineer in the audience during the convention, Ozaki says. We were honored to get their perspective and receive positive validation from other creators at the top of their field about our work. But Ozaki hopes Zoto will do more than validate the artistic efforts of her team. She hopes it will raise awareness of Colorado's lesser-known histories by exploring the trauma and joys of three generations of Japanese-American women in Denver. Immersion and Reflection Zoto is a group effort in the truest sense of the word. The work was produced by the Japanese Arts Network a national organization that brings together communities, stakeholders, and artists to support Japanese arts in America, in collaboration with Control Group Productions, Luster Productions, and Theater Artibus. After the success of a previous drive-through iteration of the project during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, Ozaki put together a team to produce a more developed version of the show, She asked Akemi Tsutsui Kunitake to be the project's cultural consultant, and Megan Frank and Buba Basishvili to co-produce. Leah Podzimek came on board to co-produce and serve as director of flow and fundraising, while Patrick Mueller and Carolyn Sharkey were brought in to support the technical elements. The result of this all-hands-on-deck approach is a celebration of how the Japanese community survived in America after World War II. The experience's script was written by Ozaki 
but revised by actors through improvisation, producer collaboration, and community interviews. The narrative was inspired, in part, by Ozaki relatives' stories about being detained during the war. People have a hard time relating to stories of incarcerated individuals when told from textbooks or other traditional forms of media, Tsutsui-kun Take says. That's what's so great about immersive experiences. We get to put people in these true stories that allow people to reflect on their actions. That's more powerful than if we just told the story to them. To that end, attendees should prepare themselves for a multi-sensory experience. We want folks to engage all five of their senses, Podzimek says. People will taste things. We're using next-level sensescapes, so you can smell elements of the journey. You'll hear all sorts of things through sound design and dialogue. You'll see the actors and set. And we're working on creating components for people to touch along the way. This style of immersive theater is a relatively new art form, and the group realizes this will be a new experience for many. It can be exciting, but can also be uncomfortable at times, Tsutsui Kunitake says. Part of that intentional discomfort comes from direct interaction between actors and audience members who are a crucial part of the experience. This is a show with only 12 audience members at a time, which will be very intimate, Ozaki says. You are not a voyeur. You are in the show and will be acknowledged. Ultimately, the team behind Zoto says such an intimate, immersive experience was made possible by community members and partners with an appetite for social justice and experimental storytelling. The reason that we were able to tell this story now is that there was such an immense amount of support for the story, Frank says. I am very excited for the audience to be able to experience this particular story in Sakura Square, one of the last visual spaces that represents the deep and rich culture of Japanese-American history. The Limits of Empathy Celebrate Noir-vember with El Vampiro Negro by Michael J. Casey The man looks unassuming. He's Theodora Uber, Nathan Pinzon, a middle-aged English professor, short and squat, with proper manners and nice clothes. He's timid in the company of women, reserved around other men. But little children seem to like him, even trust him, right up to the moment he cuts their throats. Much like Truman Capote's seminal In the Cold Blood, 1953's El Vampiro Negro, The Black Vampire, from Argentinian filmmaker Roman Vignoli Barreto, is a masterwork that tests the limits of what you might consider entertainment. The story retells Fritz Lang's 1931 German film, M, about a sick man compelled to kill children. Based on two real-life killers and set during the Weimar Republic, M draws parallels between the killer and a deranged society seeking to dole out justice by hook or by crook. Two decades later, Hollywood director Joseph Lose remade M, this time casting the corrupting presence of communist witch hunts over the proceedings. This might be why Barreto's take on the compulsive child killer is the fullest and most empathetic portrait of the three versions. 
and not by further investigating Albert's condition, but by placing front and center the women sidelined in previous versions. Specifically, two cabaret singers, Rita, Olga Zuberi, and Cora, Nelly Paniza. One shields Albert from harm, while the other chides and humiliates him. It's quite a reversal when you realize that the one chiding Albert does so to the public persona, while the one shielding him does so in the face of Albert's true nature. Roger Ebert called movies empathy machines. It doesn't matter who's on screen, what they have done, or what they will do. Cinema asks us to watch, to identify, to understand. Most of the time, we walk away feeling better about ourselves and about the world. But sometimes the movies ask us to consider the unthinkable, to look at a monster and find the broken humanity underneath. El Vampiro Negro belongs in that conversation. The characters are richly drawn, and Barreto further twists the proverbial knife by juxtaposing Ulber with the lead investigator, Roberto Escada, tasked with capturing him. Where Ulber is helpless to the voices in his head urging him to commit unspeakable acts, the inspector chooses the path of superficial righteousness while acting in his own shallow interests. And with subject matter this unnerving, but artistic value this stunning, we must be in noir territory. Barreto and cinematographer Annabel Gonzalez Paz pay homage to the German expressionism of Lang's M, with chiaroscuro lighting, wrought iron shadows, and a subterranean world so dirty you want to wipe your shoes on the way out. It's incredible, and it would have been lost if not for the championing of Argentina's leading cinema archivist, Fernando Martin Peña, restoration work by the Film Noir Foundation, and the UCLA Film and Television Archive, and a gorgeous new Blu-ray slash DVD set from Flickr Alley. On disc, El Vampiro Negro, available in a Blu-ray slash DVD set from Flickr Alley. Bonus material includes an introduction from Noir Film Foundation President Eddie Muller, The Three Faces of M, a critical comparison, an interview with Daniel Vignola, commentary by Fernando Martin Peña, and an essay by Imogen Sarah Smith. Thank you again for joining us for tonight's edition of the Boulder Weekly. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.